Hello folks, and welcome to yet another edition of Variable V Postulate Ensemble Projects. This is your friendly neighborhood studio man and host, bringing you yet another really interesting and informative conversation with a professional musician. Recently, I've been doing a series of interviews with trumpeters who double an EV, electric valve instrument, and while there will be more, we can take a little break today. Today, we're talking with a stellar and experienced professional lead trumpet player, Roger Ingram. Roger has been in the forefront of big band lead trumpet playing for quite a long time, and most of my listeners will be pretty familiar with his work already. But just to remind you, let's give a listen to Roger at work in Woody Herman's band back in 1986 on It Don't Mean a Thing If It Ain't Got That Swing. Thank you. 
Well, folks, we've been listening to Roger Ingram playing lead trumpet on uh, the uh, Woody Herman band back in 1982. and no, 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 It was 86. 1986. And, uh, folks, we have Roger Ingram here uh, <laughs> in the Zoom the Zoom studio, as it were. Roger, how are you doing, man? I'm, I'm doing good. It's nice to be here. Thanks for asking me to be another one of your... Uh... <laughs> Another one of your contestants. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, this is really a conversation I've been looking to have, forward to having. Um, all right. Uh, we just heard the, the Woody Herman thing. Uh, tell us about that, Chud. Tell us about that recording. Well, you know, um, that was, that's, that's from the 50th anniversary tour album. Uh-huh. And I had been on Woody's band for a year. And Woody hadn't done a record for a while. And John Fedchuk wrote that arrangement. And at okay. the time, John Fedchuk was, was uh, the lead trombone player. And he uh, played one of the, did he play one of the solos? Yes. It was him and Paul McKee traded on there. And the oh. two players that traded were Mark Lewis and Ron Stout. Oh, wow. Okay. And I was the lead trumpet player on that band. Yeah. And, uh, we went to the Great American Music Hall in San Francisco and Concord Records with Carl Jefferson. They brought in a mobile mobile or recording unit, parked mm-hmm. it uh, near the backstage door and brought in all the cables and everything. And Woody said, we're going to play the same set twice and then we're going to pick the best version of each tune. And we did the whole record in about three hours. Wow. And then uh, John Fedchuk got together with Carl Jefferson over at Concord Records, and he mixed it in a day. And then he came back out and joined us on the road. And that was my first real big record for me. Um, And uh, I had been on the band for about a year, and John Fedchuk started writing the arrangements with the exception of uh, Fried Buzzard. All the other charts that were written for that record were written after I had joined the band. And the way Woody would do it, Woody was such a smart band leader. And and in fact, uh, I've, I've, I've even had people back in the 60s say Woody would get the same band out there, try to hold the same band together for a while. And then he would tell his arrangers, I want you to write these charts on these tunes and I want you to write it for this group tailor-made for this band and i want you to bring out the uh, showcase everybody's best qualities you know so that's how uh woody approached telling his arrangers how to write and so john was very aware of my playing by then yeah so he wrote lead parts that he thought would bring out uh, my my strong points you know and he he did the same thing for the soloists and, and everybody on that album and that album got nominated for a Grammy Award oh, yeah. that year. And, uh, you know, because before I joined Woody's band in 1986, I had already been on the road um, for 12 years. I mean, that wow. wasn't my first gig. I started on the road when I was 16. Oh, my man. first road gig. Okay. And and then I was with Connie Stevens for a year and then Tom Jones for six years. And then I worked on the relief band in Vegas for a couple of years. And then uh, that brings me up to Woody's band. And um, I really 
cut my teeth as a lead trumpet player on that Woody Herman band. It was such a good band. And all the guys in the band were helpful to me. But you have to realize, though, even though I got a lot of experience playing in a jazz band in my high school band, which Eagle Rock High School had a great uh, jazz band in the Los Angeles area then. Okay. Mostly, I, I my experience was came from doing shows. I was doing okay. Connie Stevens' show, Tom Jones' show. And then when I was in Vegas, every Saturday night on the relief band was the swing shit band. Every Saturday, we'd play whatever star act was at the Cedars Palace on Saturday. Mm-hmm. Whatever star act was at the Sahara on Sunday. And then Monday night, we played the Follies Brigier. And that was my night to play lead. The okay. next night, we played... Uh, the Lido show at the Stardust, and that was Lynn Nicholson's night to play lead. Okay. And then okay. the next night we played uh, City Lights at the Flamingo Hilton, and that was Bobby Hamilton's night to play lead. Okay. And then on Thursday we played the Moulin Rouge show at the Hilton, and that was such a hard show that the three of us would all split the lead book. Okay. And then on Friday, that was my night off. So until I got to Woody's band, I got a lot of practical experience reading a lot of hard production shows and, and playing for a lot of star X and on some of the star X, the stuff swung. Yeah. So yeah. I could, I could swing to a certain degree, but from when I joined Woody's band, I was mostly a show player, you know, okay. That's and, and then with Woody's guidance and, and, you know, I didn't have any college education because I started so early before I even graduated high school. I was on the road. Here I am on Woody's band with guys who have master's degree from Eastman <laughs> and Berkeley. Everybody on that band had huge academic credentials. And and I didn't, you know, and 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 I was kind of a I was a little headstrong in those days. I was kind of a kind of. I looked at myself as kind of just coming from the streets, uh-huh, uh-huh. but I had a lot of respect. I still have a lot of respect for those guys, Frank Tiberi and Woody and everybody. And I, I took their advice and they, they hit me to a lot of things about my playing. They say, you know, you need to do this and you need to do that. And by the time that 50th anniversary record got in, got, got put into the can there, I had really, become a lead trumpet player i had grown okay. and in that first year and that record kind of you know it's like i talked to my old friend wayne bergeron wayne and i have yeah. known each other since we were teenagers we're the same age and we both came up in la and we both studied with the same te- teachers uh-huh. and, and wayne said to me said man that record really put you on the map and, <laughs> and, and then i and then we did two more records and then woody passed away uh-huh. And then I started my 20 years with Harry Connick Jr. And that started a whole other aspect of my life. You know, I mean, before Harry Connick Jr., people used to hire me for the right reasons. And then then after Harry Connick Jr., Harry Connick Jr. started writing so much high stuff for me to play that I got kind of pigeonholed as a high note player, which I didn't really want to do because... Uh I really wanted to just be known as a lead trumpet player because there's a lot of guys with great high chops, but uh, in, in all seriousness, some of them, the last place they need to be seated is on the first trumpet book. Uh-huh, playing uh-huh. playing a, the lead trumpet book is not all about playing high notes, you know? So anyway, listen, I'm getting kind of 
ahead of myself here. Yeah, I know. Cool. I know you got some questions to ask me, and I'm sorry. Oh no, no, no! This is great. On, you know, I mean, I've been thinking about the questions, and I've been thinking about you know how how I can help you get what you want out of me. So oh, I'll no, shut this. up for a second. And, <laughs> That's and I'll, I'll I'll let you ask me the next question. <laughs> this is awesome, Roger. So uh, I kind of figured I would let you just free associate here as a, as a go as we go along. Um, you mentioned Harry Connick Jr. Um, how'd you get that gig? How did you end up giving on to Harry Connick's band? Dan Miller. Dan. Dan oh, Miller. Wow. So you have to realize that uh, Harry was still pretty unknown. Uh-huh. He he. It was a kind of a fluke from what I understand. Now, don't don't quote me here. I'm not going to put this in the stone, but I think it's a fluke <laughs> that he ended up singing most of the mu- music for that movie when Harry met Sally. I think someone else was supposed to do it, and they turned it down, and then Harry sang and I think actually wrote some <laughs> of the music for that movie, and that launched his career big time. I mean, because Harry sounded so great on the movie, and he's such a multi-talented guy that Okay, so here's a guy who, and he's like 20, Uh and he wanted to put together a big band, and he is from New Orleans, and and New Orleans isn't known for its large jazz ensembles. Small groups and second line. Small groups, second line, performing out on the street, and, and all of them are just awesome at doing that. I mean, nobody does it like a New Orleans player, but he didn't really... No, he knew enough, but not everything about how uh, a jazz band, the pecking order in a jazz band works. So he he called these universities. And at the time, Dan Miller was a student at the University of North Texas. And Dan is always, Dan is such a sharp guy, you know, and he always has his finger on the pulse of what's going on. Dan knew who Harry Connick Jr. was. Uh-huh. And Harry Connick uh, called Dan Miller and Brad Lee and a whole bunch of other people. And then, and then some people from uh, Lionel Hampton's band, he called Dave Schumacher and Jerry Weldon. And so he started calling around and had his manager, talk to some of the big jazz schools and and he picked a new orleans guy who's uh i'm not going to say say who he was and he was a great new orleans player but he picked him to be the lead trumpet player uh-huh and he, he wasn't really the right choice for the lead trumpet chair you know i mean he's uh, he's no longer with us but, and he he was an awesome player but he's not like the type of guy that you that you put in that pivotal position, which is uh-huh. a big chair and a big man. So they went out for, I think they were out for three or four months and Harry's putting the band together and Harry's learning about how the whole thing works. And he's got help from Dan and Brad Lilly, people who had been, you know, uh, in the, the jazz program over there at UNT uh-huh. And kind of saying, well, Harry, you know, this is, and Harry was started writing his own charts. So they finally got to the point where Harry uh, realized that he was going to have to make a switch with that lead trumpet chair. Uh He didn't, he had not hired the right guy for that chair. And I had just finished coming back from Europe with Maynard's band. We were over there doing, uh, this was 1990. 
Okay. I did. I did my. Uh, I was in the middle of doing my second album with Maynard's band. We. Yeah. Uh, it was called Live from London. Okay. Uh, and we did that whole tour and recorded the record at Ronnie Scott's, and. Dan Miller had been keeping tabs on me by staying in touch with Bobby Shue because I was still living in L.A. Then Bobby Shue was still living in L.A. And then and when I was being in L.A., I was always going over to Bobby's house. I was there every other week, you know, two or yeah. three times a week sometimes. So Dan said, Bobby, I got to get hold of Roger. I, I want to see if he wants to take this gig with Harry Connick Jr. And it's still Harry was kind of unknown. And Bobby said, well, I think he's going to be back in town. And like tomorrow, he's just getting back from Europe with Maynard's band. Give him a call. He's living over there in South Pasadena. Yeah. And I was living in South Pasadena right next door to Fred Simmons, who's this great trombone player and a music copyist and everything. Oh, yeah. So, so all of a sudden, I get I, I get on the uh, the super shuttle back from the airport. <laughs> and, I, and I walk into my apartment in South Pasadena. And I listen. In those days, we had the the message machines with the little, <laughs> the little yeah, tape in there. And I listened to my message and then there's, I think there was a message from Dan Miller. He said, Roger, you got to call me. I, I want to know if you want to go out with uh, this guy named Harry Connick Jr. You know? And so I called Dan because, he, you know, I got back from Maynard's tour and I didn't have anything, you know, I was just going to go back to try to freelance again. Yeah, yeah. As yeah. a trumpet player who wasn't really part of the LA music community, because I, I I got known as a road guy. I was based out of LA, but I I was gone so much that it, it, I almost didn't even bother to try to hook up with anybody in LA because uh -huh. I I started traveling so much. So so I had nothing going for me. You know, I mean, I would have gotten something going. Yeah. yeah. But uh, so I called Dan. I said, he said, hey, listen, do you want to? go on the road with uh, Harry and he said his last name and I, and I, and I thought he said Ray Conniff <laughs> and I said, Ray Conniff. I didn't even know he was still alive. And Dan said, no, 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 it's not Ray Conniff. It's Harry Connick Jr. And I said, well, who's that? <laughs> and he goes, well, you know, he's this new guy and he's, he, I'm telling you, he's got a lot of talent and I think he's going places and and he just got he just he wants to make a change on the lead trumpet chair, and would you be interested in coming out? So my thing was I had just finished being out with Maynard, which to me was like you know a big deal, and and, uh -huh. I, and I thought that I was taking a chance on this guy who I'd never heard of, <laughs> and I said, well, Dan, what's the band like? He goes, well, I said we got Jerry Weldon and Dave Schumacher. And uh, Shannon Powell and Russell Malone and Ben Wolf and Harry's a great piano player. And Dan kind of sold me on. He said, man, the band is just a great band. Yeah. But, yeah. but he, he Harry didn't pick the right guy for the lead trumpet chair. And we got Leroy Jones and and he started Lucian Barber and he started, man, you Roger, you, you got to come out here and do this band. And so. So I said well, what do I do? And he goes, well, if you tell me you'll take the gig, I'll, I'll hook everything up for you. And then you'll hear from his manager, who's Amory Wilkins, and she'll send you an airline ticket. And, and he told me how much it was going to pay. And it didn't pay anywhere close to what it eventually ended up paying 20 okay. years later. Yeah. But, but I mean, we were still doubling up. I mean, my, I, I went out there and I roomed with Brad Lely, you know, uh -huh. <laughs> and then, and then I roomed with Will Campbell for a while. And then I, I think I roomed with Dan for a while. So, I mean, it was, and we were riding a bus and, 
they were spending about nine months a year out there on the road because they were really pushing Harry. So I, so I started with the band in Atlantic city in August of 1990. Yeah. And I think that they had been in Harry organized the band in like May or June. So they okay. were like in the middle of the road. I went up, I met with the band. Yeah. Yeah. And I went in and I started, I approached sitting down and playing that book like I was on Woody's band. Okay. okay. That's how I was going to play the book, like on Woody's band. And at the first rehearsal, Harry wrote something for me up to a double C and I, and I just nailed it. And he goes, wow, I didn't know you. Wow. You (laughs) were able to play that. And Harry likes to play trumpet too. He's a multi-instrumental. Yeah. So after he heard that, all the charts from there <laughs> after all had like A's and double C's and double D's. It it became like, you know, a high note thing. That's cool. Well, it's cool to a degree, <laughs> except that Harry became so popular. And yeah. every other week we were on national television, like on the Today Show or. Sure. Or, you know, uh, Good Morning America or, or Letterman or uh, Brian, uh, 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 you know, Jay Leno and, and the, the other cat in New York. I can't forget his name, but, you know, and Arsenio Hall. And every time we'd be live on live TV, there was some chart that I'm just playing up the C's and D's and A's. And then that got so much exposure, way more than Woody's band, because Harry was popular with the general public because he was a good looking guy and he had that nice voice and he had the band and he had a lot of energy. So as far as uh, I started getting known as a high note trumpet player, Okay, okay. And Harry, Harry wanted me to hang over those notes <laughs> on, on the cutoffs. In fact, uh, one time we were in the studio, it was for a Christmas album, and we were we were between second trumpet players. So for the session, we hired Tony Cadillac. I said, "You got to get Tony." Yeah. So t- Tony played second for on one of those Christmas albums, yeah, and yeah. at the end of one of those tunes, Harry wrote the last note a high A. You know. Yeah. And I cut it right off. And he, in those days, he, uh, he was kind of a purist. He, he didn't believe in overdubbing anything. If, if something went wrong, we had to do the whole chart from the beginning to the end again. Okay. Okay. And he said, Roger, I didn't, I don't want you to cut that, that a off. I want you to hang over on it. Okay. And kiss it off. And Tony Cadillac <laughs> just started laughing his ass off because, <laughs> because I had been getting shit for doing that already because this was about my fifth year into the gig and Bobby Shue would give me so much crap for hanging over. He says, man, he says, man, people know who's playing lead. You don't have to hang over. And I said, Bobby, you don't realize, man, really, Harry wants me to do that. He wants me to do that. And Bobby was like, yeah, yeah, right. Bobby didn't believe me. Uh-huh. So. So when we had to do that takeover again, I started calculating in my head, how much do I need to hang over to make Harry happy, but to get the least amount of crap from Bobby Shue? And so that (laughs) that became the issue in my head on how to do that. And still to this day, 
people saying, ah, you know, Roger hangs over, you know, on his nose. <laughs> and, and, and it kind of, it's kind of, it's not good. It's, I mean, you know, outside of the world of Harry Connick Jr. and his big band in the normal musical community. Yeah. Hanging over uh, past the cutoff from the conductor is generally frowned upon, you know? Okay. Yeah. And it's like Broadway conductors don't like that. Uh, Star acts don't like that, but you know, in all fairness to Harry, because, you know, it's not all his fault. I was still young and I had, you know, I had just discovered my high chops when I was on Woody's band. Okay. I okay. I had for the first 11 years of my professional playing career, I only played up to an A. Okay. And it's it, and it was because I wanted to go out with Woody's band. I knew I was going to have an opportunity to do that and I knew that because of Bill Chase in the 60s the book was written up to a double C. So it was only at that time that I decided to increase my range to a double C yeah. so that I could get the gig with Woody. It's okay. not like I was trying to always see how high I could play and everything. Like I said, before Harry Connick, people used to hire me for the right reasons. They, <laughs> they, they like my feel and my sound and my time and my pitch, you know? And so when I started on Harry's band and with the encouragement of Harry, and I was still kind of feeling my oats. And, and so in all fairness to him, it wasn't entirely his fault when I knew that I had like uh, a green light to be able to do that stuff. <laughs> I, admittedly, I overdid it a few times, you know? <laughs> and the thing is, is that I was, but I was a guy who was out on the road. I didn't have to abide to the musical standard of maybe the LA community or the yeah. new york community i didn't have to answer to those guys uh -huh, uh -huh. i mean i was out there with harry and i could basically do whatever i wanted and and i didn't think far enough ahead that well you know roger when you finally do get off the road that 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 style of of hanging over from time to time it might catch up with you you know so i um I'm kind of paying the price for it now, although, you know, since yeah, I've been no. here in Chicago, I've uh, conformed. And I'm, a, I'm a member of a couple of symphony orchestras and a brass band, of course, you know, not during lockdown. Yeah, and I've yeah. become much more of a conservative type of lead trumpet player, you know. But, yeah. but, but to answer your question, that's how the whole thing happened with Harry. And so yeah. I went out there and so... So for three years, the band, we recorded Blue Light, Red Light in 91, and that got nominated for a Grammy Award. And it really, it really put the whole band on the map, and the money went up, and we started being able to have our own rooms. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then right at the height of the popularity of that band, and okay. at between 92 and 93, Harry decides to break up the big band and start a funk group. Okay. okay. Which goes against, it's the old saying, if never deviate from a formula of it's working, man. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. You know, because he did not become the next James Brown. I mean, that funk band, he tried doing that for about three or four years and it didn't work. And then in 1997, he started the big band up again. But fortunately for me, between 
93 and 97, it gave me a chance to play lead trumpet and record uh, several albums with the Lincoln Center Jazz Orchestra. Okay. And I got to go out and tour with Ray Charles and with Paul Anka. And, and, and by then I, I had moved to New York. Yeah. So yeah. I, I started becoming busier in New York. I subbed on a lot of Broadway shows and, and, and so in a way, for us, it was a good thing that he broke up the band, but for Harry, it wasn't such a great thing because even when he started the big band back up in 1997, he, it was like he had to claw his way back up to try to get to where he was when he broke the band up. Yeah. The music business can be pretty fickle. Well, uh, and also then there was the event of Michael Buble, who was selling out stadiums. And oh, he yeah, yeah. He was kicking Harry's ass. Yeah. You know, yeah. Harry, if Harry had stayed in there <laughs> with, with the formula that that was working, yeah. uh, he'd, he'd be filling up stadiums too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's give a listen to uh, some of Harry Connick's music. Um, let's listen to something's got to give. Tell us a well, little bit about that chart. Well, that is, uh, I don't think we ever recorded that. Uh, you sent me the video. link. <laughs> this is well. This is a live concert. Oh, at, that's right. That's right. This is uh, at Royal, the Royal Albert Hall. Okay. Okay. And, and uh, this is a live performance that we gave. I think it was 1992. We were on a European tour, and the BBC came in with the, a mobile unit and recorded us one night, just okay. one night. And Harry sold that hall out for seven nights in a row. Wow. I mean, sold the place out, and they came in on like our third or fourth night and recorded the band. And this is just live, you know. Right. And it and it went over uh, the radio live, and it wasn't until about well, let's see, fifteen years later, when I was over in Europe doing some clinics in in uh, Ireland. Okay. That Ryan Quigley. The great trumpet player Ryan Quigley. Okay. He gave me a CD. He goes, "You might remember doing this, but this <laughs> is a CD of you at Royal Albert Hall with Harry's band." And it had been a few years since I was with Harry. And while we were in Ryan's car driving around, it was either Scotland or Ireland. He put it on. I'm telling you, tears started coming down my eyes while I was listening to it because the the whole experience with Harry came back to me and I started hearing, man, man, that was a good band, you know? Yeah. And, uh, this, and as you'll, as you'll see, it was a pretty exciting time. So go ahead and play it. Oh yeah. Right. We'll drop that in there. Something's got to give. Such as you, beats an old immovable object like me. You can bet as sure as you live. Something's gotta give, something's gotta give, something's gotta give. When an irreversible smile such as yours warms an old implacable heart such as mine, don't say no because they insist. Somewhere, somehow, someone's gonna get kissed So on guard 
have in store in their vast mysterious sky I'll try hard ignoring those lips I adore but how hard can anyone try fight 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 with all of your might chances are some heavenly stars bangle night we'll find out as sure as we live between us and that is dan miller well, well, <laughs> i don't yeah. know, I I don't know if you know dan miller dan. dan miller was when he was in high school and in junior college and for a little while uh out at uh before he went to north texas state <laughs> i was his trumpet teacher i know so, dan, dan would when we were on the road with harry's bed he was always talking about you uh, dan, i knew i knew all about you before i decided to, to live here <laughs> My condolences. Um, <laughs> oh, Dan's yeah. a, Dan was a great Dan is a great guy, and I I really liked his 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 dad John Miller, who uh, ran a car dealership up in um, uh, the northern suburbs of Chicago. Yeah, Big uh, John. Big John. Yeah, great. Yeah, great people, and, and Dan's a wonderful trumpet player. Uh, Dan, um, Dan's man, he's a really sharp cat, man. I'm yeah. telling you, he's he's one of the most. He's a beautiful cat. He's one of my best friends, and yeah, yeah. Man, he lives down there in Florida, and I'm up here in Chicago. I don't, I don't get to see him ever, really. I mean, I yeah. saw him a couple of years ago, but uh, I'd like to, I'd like to be able to see him more often. You yeah. know, maybe after we come out of all this, uh, this uh, <laughs> weirdness of the pandemic, we can uh, be able to get uh, get out there and get to be out with people again. Yeah. Uh, Roger, one of the things I like to do uh, with this program, in addition to this kind of talking about uh, music, uh, is um, uh, a lot, some of my listeners, I, I shouldn't say a lot, but uh, some of my listeners are music ed students, you know, from or music, uh, general, general music students in college. And they're looking at a career in music. And um, uh, what advice would you want to give the younger musicians out there for survival in the 21st century? Well, it, it, it depends on what they want to do. 
Okay. Now, if, if for the younger musicians who want to make money, yeah. Um, and it's and especially the younger trumpet players who want to make money. Okay. Um, you got to realize that when it comes to playing high notes, the only people who care about high notes are other trumpet players. <laughs> Absolutely you know? right. <laughs> and uh, the the general public doesn't care so much about playing a lot of high notes. In fact, too many high notes are annoying to the general public. You That's look what at, my wife tells me. <laughs> well, we're talking about the general public. Now, when I was with Maynard's band, 99% of the audience was trumpet players. And yeah, so, I mean, yeah. Maynard had, Maynard cornered that market. He made a very good living, but it was mostly trumpet players. And then uh, jazz saxophone players loved hearing the band. They wanted to get on the band and uh -huh. piano players and drummers, you know, I mean, that sure. was the audience with Maynard, but the majority were trumpet players. So to that degree, if you can corner that market as a touring trumpet player, okay. But <laughs> if, if you want to uh, make a lot of money, you might want to come up with a style that will, that will appeal to the general public. Now, a good example is Chris Bodie. Okay. Who's an absolutely wonderful trumpet player. I knew Chris Bodie before he became Chris Bodie. I knew him when he was in New York as a studio musician and yeah. he was a first call uh, cat that would get called for sessions for like Paul Simon okay. and, and a bunch of other people. The guy's got like a beautiful sound, great pitch, great technique. And then he, he was involved with so many different records and he would see the machine behind these artists when they were all in the studio and their managers. And he's, I think now you don't quote me because I'm not sure. But, you know, just from, you say, don't quote me, but you realize we're recording this. <laughs> but, 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 from, but from what I understand, okay. <laughs> he, he finally said, you know, I could do that. I could okay. go out and do that. And he became his own act and he's, he's a good looking cat and he found the right promoter, the right person to help market him. And he plays beautifully. And you, you know, you hear these concerts that he gives, he never ever plays above a high E or high F because yeah, yeah. But to the general public and they buy tickets for the see this guy. I'm telling you, he's making a lot of bread. I mean, you, you can go on Google and see what every, what people's estimated worth is. Yeah. And I think just out of curiosity, I did that with Chris Bodie and he's like estimated about 8 million, you know? Wow. And, and like, and, and, I, and there's friends of mine when he comes to Chicago who go see him and I say, well, tell Chris, I said hello. And they always come back students of mine. They come back and say, yeah, Chris said say hi, <laughs> you know? And you look at him and one of the other trumpet players who's made more money than any other trumpet players, Herb Alpert. Yeah. Oh Yeah. I mean, you look at Herb Alpert, and then there's like Al Hurt is, had a successful career. So if you're a trumpet player, yeah, high notes are really a, a, a kind of – I, I look at high notes as just being a parlor trick. I mean, yeah, yeah. after you get the knack of how to make the thing, it's it's like it's almost it's like who cares, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you have to be – you have to have all the fundamental strength and and – ability in the mid register you have to kind of own everything between low f sharp high c before you can attempt learning how to do that little knack that little trick but after you do it i mean people the general public doesn't care about that stuff at all you know yeah so it, for as far as my advice to a music students 
I mean, if you want to be a, 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 a trumpet student, if you want to be a success in this business as a soloist, okay. and, it, and, and it's gotten to the point now that if you want to be a successful trumpet player, you almost have to be a soloist. Because, yeah. because like, you know, the days of Andy Williams traveling and hiring a full orchestra in every town he goes to and, and bring in his own lead trumpet player and rhythm section and and Robert Goulet carried his own lead player and Dean Martin carried his own lead player yeah, yeah. and Frank Sinatra carried his own lead player and Tom Jones carried his own lead player. And I did that one for about six years that those days are over with because all the pop artists, there's, there isn't even any horns. Yeah. So yeah. if you want to, if you really think you're going to make a living as a trumpet player, you're forced to have to be a soloist okay, and to okay. be able to put your own group together and stand out front and do that. And if you're going to be a soloist, you better come up with something that the general ticket buying public is going to go see you. And that yeah. doesn't mean coming out and just unloading high notes on every single tune because the general public really gets annoyed by that. Yeah. I mean, the smart band leaders like Woody Herman and Lionel Hampton, who were the, in, during their reign, which was the 30s and the 40s and the 50s, yeah. they were trying to appeal to the general public, too. Yeah. And yeah. in those days, it wasn't the lead trumpet player who was playing the high notes. It was the high note guy who played the fifth book at the end of the section. Yeah, so maybe and, used to do. And one, one tune a set, usually at the last tune, they'd let the, the high note players stand up front and unload, right? Yeah. And that was exciting to the general public. One tune. Yeah. yeah. On Flying Home or something like that. And then okay. that's that. And then, like, for Tommy Dorsey and those guys, then they go back to playing I'm Getting Sentimental Over You <laughs> or Harry James, You Made Me Love You, all that stuff that appealed to the general public. I mean, it's, it's like you got to think about what you're doing. If you want to be a successful trumpet player, and, and, and you have to know how to read and, and having good time and good pitch because sure. you might do some things in the studio. But if you really want to like, I mean, I think uh, it, it, in the famous words of Sweets Edison on an okay. interview, someone asked him about his playing style. And he said, well, when I was a young man, I decided to come up with a style that I could till, still do when I'm in my 80s. Okay. And, and Sweets Edison came up with that style. And sure enough. He always sounded the same, man. It's it's yeah. not like, you know, he was a high note player and then got too old to do it or something like that. He he was smart enough to say, I think I'm going to do this because the, now we're talking about some longevity, you know. Yeah. Now, as, as far as is uh, is music for music students uh, who play other instruments, my suggestion is, right, you know, try to do well in all of your studies at school and try to find something you can fall back on, like being an engineer or okay. an artist or something, but pay attention to poetry in poetry class and, and pay attention to, to uh, learning about harmony and theory and how to play a keyboard. Cause if you want to be a successful person in the music business, uh -huh. you're the people who write their own lyrics and that's where poetry class comes in. 
and write their own tunes. That's where learning how to play a keyboard and, and knowing some theory and harmony yeah. and analyzing the the pop tunes that are getting a lot of airplay and maybe taking stealing that chord structure and putting another melody to it, another set of lyrics to it. Sure. And then and then owning everything by BMI ASCAP your stuff your lyrics your music whether you think it's a good tune or not okay and then try to go sell it to somebody like lady gaga or any of these other people and and you'll get to know get known as a songwriter and you own the tune now if if you want to put out your own act you you uh hire the band in fact the the, the whole thing, and you, now you can be an independent record producer. You don't, you don't have to have a record company telling you what to do. Sure. And there's so many uh, uh, media platforms where you can sell your music. If you write your own lyrics and your own tunes, and if you s- sing, I'm not talking about just trumpet players now. I'm, I'm talking yeah, about singing yeah. mm-hmm. and get your own band. that you and, if, and it happens to be a hit, man, you own all of it. Yeah. So, I mean, if you want to be successful in the music business you have to become a jack of all trades you have to be able to write lyrics write music play piano play guitar sing do the whole nine yards you look at someone like lady gaga and she has these these wild outfits that she wears and stuff Uh she's a a very well-educated and trained singer yeah, yeah. She yeah. really knows what she's doing, and and I particularly love her because she's got a trumpet tattooed on her arm. You know? <laughs> but I mean, there's a woman who wants to appeal, and she's got a great bod. Uh-huh. You know, she's a young; she can do all the dance moves and everything. But believe me, she knows what she's doing. Uh, yeah. Tony Bennett wouldn't have hooked up with her if she didn't. Yeah, that's right. That's you know. Right. So it's like all the the facade that you see. Don't think for a minute that they don't know what they're doing and that they didn't go to music school and at least learn a, a few things, you know. Exactly, exactly. I mean, Harry Connick Jr. is he's he's a musical genius. I mean, yeah, he is so multi-talented. So I mean, you, you really have to pay attention uh, in in music school and in poetry class and learn how to do some things and uh-huh. keep your nose clean. Don't get don't get involved with drugs, drugs and alcohol and think that that being cool like that's going to get you anywhere because it doesn't get you anywhere. Okay. Okay. You know, so I yeah. mean, that's my advice to, to kids who want to be successful in the music business is it's like, you got to create. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Good stuff. Roger. I'm sure everybody will appreciate that. Well, Roger, well let's maybe, find out. maybe, maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Roger, what are you up to? Uh, the next track I want to play is a is an old Beatles tune called Yesterday, and that that leads me into um, uh, what are you up to? Tell us, tell you know, this is a chance to promote. So, okay, tell us about Roger Ingram's Roger Ingram Enterprises. <laughs> well, you know, um, now when I started out, I could and I did, I could make my living just sitting in a trumpet section, being uh-huh. a lead trumpet player. I did that for thirty five years. I didn't have to go out front. I didn't have to play any solos because I was never really one chomping at the bit to play a bunch of solos. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I really enjoyed just being in the trumpet section, being part of the ensemble. And when I was young and I found out that I could play up to an A, uh-huh. I started noticing that you made more money if you were a lead trumpet player. Uh-huh. And, 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 you know, I grew up um, basically in Hollywood. 
California. And I was surrounded, you know, in the 60s and the 70s, I was surrounded by the cream of the crop players who were buying homes and sending their kids through college, just playing instruments and being in the studios. And, and I would started doing rehearsal bands and I would play a rehearsal band with John Thomas, who had a Andy Williams luggage tag on his. (laughs) I said, what's that for? He goes, well, I travel with Andy Williams when he goes out on tour. And I started noticing that these stars used to carry their own lead trumpet players. And sure enough, right out of high school, I toured with Connie Stevens in that capacity for a year. And then I went out with Tom Jones for six years. And then it snowballed and a lot of the things I've already talked about. So for years and years and years, I could be just a lead trumpet player and do Uh shows, you know, and I was happy doing that. And I didn't have to really learn how to go out and, and present myself as a featured solo. Cause I basically, I've always been kind of shy. <laughs> and, but in later years here, after I designed this trumpet that I've been playing for 13 years is uh-huh. it's a XO brass 1600. I, it's a Roger Ingram model that Jupiter makes. Cool. I started being asked by high schools and colleges to come out and, and be a guest artist at their festival and give a clinic and some master classes and play a few tunes uh-huh. with their jazz ensemble. So I had to uh, start looking at the fact that I, I have to learn how to kind of go out front and get on the mic and be a soloist. And, uh-huh. and because the opportunity to do what I was trained to do is becoming less and less and less. So yeah. in my efforts to stay in the game, uh-huh. even though, you know, I saved a lot of my bread and I invested it and, and Vicky and I are, are really comfortable in it, but still in order to stay in the game, uh-huh. I had to learn how to be a solo. So I did this record. Okay. With, with the Jim Stewart orchestra and we did the whole album in two hours at a bar. Oh my goodness. We brought in a mobile recording unit and I did a whole set at a bar called the uh the College Hideaway over mm-hmm. there in Connecticut. And it was I didn't intend this to be a big album. It was a sampler for high school band directors. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So, so there wasn't a lot of production value, good production value going into us. And and then all of a sudden I, I released the album and and everybody started buying it. And, and I said, gee, I wish I would have put a little bit more time and energy <laughs> into it because a lot of people said, Roger, man, that album's kind of, you know, it's like, are you sure you should have released that? And I said, I didn't expect anybody to really give a shit about it. <laughs> you know, I didn't expect that it would be that big of a deal. It was basically for, high school band director say okay and you too can play these charts and this is how the chart goes and i have and i've gone to high schools and done these charts so this tune that you're about to play uh is it dave hoffman wrote the arrangement you sure. know dave hoffman the trumpet sure. player trumpet player yeah yeah he's a, a great writer too and so uh-huh. he wrote this and this was a live uh at this bar called the college hideaway so go ahead all right let's listen to yesterday uh, featuring Roger Ingram.
Roger, we're about out of time. Um, wow, really? Oh, yeah, we've been talking for almost an hour. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm telling you, I, I was always kind of shy when I was, I was a kid, but <laughs> I, I've noticed that since I'm getting older, it's just, I just go on and on and on and on and on. It's well, like... You, it's hard to get to share. You to shut up now. <laughs> you have a lot to share, and we're all, well, you know, you know, it's like I, 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 I was kind of excited about you asking me to do this. Oh and, man, I'd and, you know, back. it's like you and I have done a lot of great projects together here in town, and I love playing with you. And, and you and I always managed to break into an interesting conversation up there. <laughs> and, and 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 the nice thing is with you, we get to sit in the trumpet section. Exactly. I mean, yeah. the gigs I I like most around this town are the ones with like Pete Elman's band and the Joshua Jern Jazz Orchestra sure, and sure. New Standard Jazz Orchestra and the Bill Bryan Big Band yeah. and the New Consortium Jazz Band. And I sub for you sometimes on the shout section. Sure, Big band. Sure. You and Michael Stewart have been doing that band for a long time. But yeah. So whenever you and I get together, it's usually We're at a section. live at a live gig where yeah. it's a big band and we're kind of like we really feel that we're at home there in, yeah, in that in that situation you know i shouldn't miss that right now but well uh, it, it'll come back it it'll will back. it will you it know will. it's like it but people gotta get smart and start getting their vaccinations and wearing masks yeah oh so boy. that we can so we can get past this you know yeah exactly rather you have a website where you promote all your work uh tell well, us about your website what's well, it like it's uh, rogeringram.com. All you got to do is Google rogeringram.com. And and I have a, a and on the homepage, you will see that I have a line of signature trumpet mouthpieces that are manufactured. I have by, one. <laughs> by, Peter, by Peter Pickett of Pickett Blackburn. Okay. And I have a, 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 a line of trumpet mutes that I designed that are manufactured and distributed by Terry Warburton of Warburton Music USA. Sure. And, of course, I have the, um, the Exobrass 1600i B-flat trumpet of my design that I've been playing now. We, we launched it in 2009. Mm-hmm. 2009 so i've been playing for 13 years and that's manufactured by jupiter exo brasses jupiter's professional line john fedchuk also plays a trump designed a trombone uh-huh. uh the exo uh brass uh tenor trombone of his design so i mean i have some products you yeah. know and uh mouthpieces and and i teach online and uh you know, under normal circumstances, I'll go out and I'll be a guest soloist with high schools and colleges. And I've done a few with uh, even some pro bands. And, and I have, um, I have, I just acquired a huge library. Uh, of, of Yeah, I saw that. I think like 3,000 charts or something. Over 3,000 charts. And uh, we're talking about uh, Billy Byers, Billy May, oh, yeah. Bill Ullman, Bob Florence, uh, all, all the best writers. And I am comp- from those 3000 charts, I'm compiling a book of about a hundred tunes and we're going to record a CD. Yeah. And uh, half the album is going to be some of these classic charts from the collection I inherited. And I'm having the other half of the album written okay. by, by arrangers here in town that, you know, some of the, the best big band arrangers around here. And I'm going to start a new orchestra. 
Um, and uh, it, in addition to the other like five or six I'm already a member of, it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah right. We need another big band around here. But, <laughs> but I mean, uh, it would be a, a waste if I didn't record some of this stuff. And so I, I hear I'm, you. I hear you. I, and I'm going to the the there's there's four owners of this orchestra. Uh-huh. Um, the it's owned by Natalie Scharf. Sure. Angel Specia Flykas. Okay. The, the singer Vicky. And Victoria Clark okay. and me. There's going to be four owners of the band because, okay. and, and and Angel and Natalie are a lot younger than me. Natalie is about 30 years younger than me because this is such a huge library yeah. that when I get too old to be able to do this, she's going to take it and keep going with it. Okay. Okay. Uh, uh, under the agreement that she does the same. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's a huge library. So, um, I'm, uh, I'm in the middle of organizing and putting together, um, you know, recording, uh, I got a producer. Yeah. Yeah. Went to do the album. And, and of course, uh, Vicky and I own a record company, one, two, three, that's O N E T O O. T-R-E-E Records. It's an independent <laughs> record label. Uh, but that's what Pete Elman released his album off of. It was okay. our, our, our record label. Mm-hmm. And uh, what you just heard that Tune and I did yesterday, Yeah, that's off of uh, a, a record uh, by uh, our record label, too. So that's what I got going on. I got, you know, I, I try to get and have as many things going on as possible. I try to keep myself interested. And, you know, the old saying... Um, um, production is the basis of morale. You know? There you go. There I mean, it's it's real easy to to cry, cry to blues and get all depressed during this pandemic. But then you know, I look at all the things that on the trumpet that I can't do, and so I go and I practice those things. And there you go. I got a big list of stuff I can't do. So <laughs> you know, it's like I and then I got the library and. You know, it's I got this going on and that going on. So, I mean, you know, it's like I'm still alive and kicking. There you go. Well, Roger Ingram, it's been great chatting with you today. And I I can't thank you enough for for doing this. Thank you for being here. Oh, yeah. Well, it's my pleasure, Nick. And uh, I'm sure I'll be seeing you soon on the bandstand. All right. We're looking forward to that. All right. Once again, I can't thank Roger Ingram enough for agreeing to chat with me today. He has made an indelible mark in the world of big band lead trumpet playing and continues to tear it up here in Chicago. Be sure to visit his website, rogeringram.com, to check out what he has to offer. Okay, that's it for this fortnight's show. I hope you enjoyed it. Please go back and give a listen to past shows in the archives. They're still up there in the old SoundCloud, and there is so much you can learn from listening to these pros talk about their work. Well, until the next program, this is a friendly neighborhood studio man, Nick Drozoff, saying, don't stop the music. Peace. Peace.